0: to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton. The integration of Major League Baseball is a historical event that's often discussed exclusively in terms of black and white, but the University of Illinois professor Adrian Burgos Jr. is out to change that by shining a light upon the important role Latinos played in baseball's integration. Early in his biography of the Numbers King and Negro League owner Alex Pompez, Burgos establishes the unique position Pompez occupied in American life writes, Pompez's story is that of an individual who lives in between what others viewed and sought to maintain as well-defined spaces. Black-white, legal-illegal, good-criminal, citizen-foreigner. It was all of these, often at the same time. Today I'm going to be speaking with Adrian about his biography, entitled, Cuban Star, How One Negro League Owner Changed the Face of Baseball. Hi Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today for New Books in Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off of it by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Um, I've been a lifelong baseball fan, and one of the things I've been privileged to do is to combine my love of history and baseball, both as professor and as historian. And so that's driven me to write Uh, first book called Playing America's Game, and now my latest book, Cuban Star, which is a biography of Alex Pompéz, who was a Negro League baseball team owner, also a Harlem numbers banker, and someone who really fascinated fascinated me because of his life story. Mm
0: -hmm. So what in particular drew drew you to Alex Pompéz?
1: Well, here you have a guy... He was of Afro-Cuban descent. He was born in Key West, Florida. And for me, as a historical figure, and also really I'm so fascinated by dynamics about race in American life, he has someone who can say in contemporary parlance about race. He was black and brown. Um, In his time, he was called a Negro mulatto, but he was a bilingual guy. He he spoke Spanish and English. He also was um, very familiar with African American life, black life in the United States, as well as Cuban life. This, this is the world in which he inhabited. And for me, it was it just a fascinating study to see someone who was moving in the circuits in which he did. He was a numbers king in Harlem. And in doing research for my initial book, I kept coming across Alex Pompez's name again and again and again. And it was interesting because people wrote about him as if he was three different individuals. There was the Negro League owner, Alex Pompez, who owned a team initially called the Cuban Stars that he would later rename the New York Cubans. Then there was the, the Numbers King in Harlem, who would often graced the pages of the Amsterdam News and the New York Age. And then after baseball integration had been launched in 1947, there was Alex Pompeo, the scouts the New York Giants, later to recount the San Francisco Giants. And I was always kind of but this is the same guy and no one's really written his story. How did he move about in this world of segregation as a black Latino into this world of integration and what was his impact? And so that's what I endeavored to do in writing Cuban star. Mm -hmm.
0: So just to start us off, baseball was incredibly important in Cuba. Can you discuss its role, particularly the link between baseball and insurgency?
1: (laughs) Definitely. Um, Baseball had its start in Cuba in the eighteen sixties and it's a fascinating tale because on a certain level As Pompe's embodied the tale of how baseball was within Cuban communities both on the island and then later in the United States as Cubans began to form their movement for independence in the eighteen sixties the elite some of the elite began to send their kids to study in the United States. they were beginning to really express their dissent to the Spanish colonial system that was in place in Cuba, and so they they just decided to stop sending their kids to Spain to study, and they sent them to the U.S., and it was precisely at that moment when baseball took off in the United States, and so they learned baseball in the United States, and they brought it back with them to Cuba, and what was fascinating is when they brought it back to Cuba, they claimed it as a Cuban sport, in contrast to the Spanish colonial sports, and so they talked about baseball as democratic, and they talked about baseball as being, meaning freedom, and, and they it added all this different meaning to the game. And as they began to struggle against Spain and have these various wars of independence, they began to migrate in greater numbers to places like Key West, Florida. And in fact, this is where Alice Montez's father, Jose Gonzalez Montez, would migrate. In 1879, he would naturalize as a U.S. citizen. I was just following the first Ten Years' War, which was the first war for independence for Cubans. And He, um, following that, his father, Alicón Pompez would be born in Key West, and in Key West, in Tampa, and other places, we would see that wherever Cubans would set up a community, Shortly after, they built those, their cigar factory to see the baseball diamond going up. Baseball, cigars, independence movement became really linked in the minds of Cuban ex- expatriates. Well, in fact, we can't really call them expatriates. They are fighting for a Cuban nation. And Jose gonzalez Pompez himself was part of that movement, being one of the original um, not owners, but one of the founders of was the second chapter of the Cuban Revolutionary Party in the United States. The first was founded in New York City, the second one was in Key West. And that is where Alex Montefiore would grow up, in a Cuban community in exile fighting for independence where baseball was the game and often used to actually raise funds for the insurgency. So baseball and the insurgency were connected from a very early moment.
0: Can you talk a bit about his youth there in Key West?
1: The U.S. was a very small town, um, but it was actually vitally important to the Florida economy and to the Cubans as a whole in their movement for independence. By the 1880s and 1890s, particularly in the early 1890s, when Jose Marti uh, would make his first visit, and uh, Jose González Pompez was one of those who helped organize the visit Marti. There were more officers from the First War and the Second War for Cuban independence per capita residing in Key West and in the rest of the United States. So this was a powerful hotbed of political activism and also of Cuban culture. So Alex Popes' father was actually elected to the Florida State Assembly in 1892. In fact, both members of the um, uh, that represented Monroe County, in the Florida State Assembly, were Cubans. The Cubans actually ran uh, Cuban on the Democratic ticket and on the Republican ticket, and they voted straight national lines. That is, they voted for their fellow Cubans. And so they had the interest very much um, protected in the Florida State Assembly. And so it shows that the Cubans very much had a powerful um, role in politics in Key West. And... Yet, these Cubans were also learning English, they were naturalized as U.S. citizens, and This is the community in which Alex Lopez would grow up in, where fighting for national independence, fighting for a different vision of what Cuba should be, with someone like Jose Marti coming by and speaking and talking about what's all and for good of all, and the expression in Spanish was mas que blanco, mas que negro, more than black, more than white. It was a different vision, but I I really try to lay out in the Cuban Star that this is kind of form, very formative of who Alice Montez would become as an adult himself, mm-hmm. that why he traversed these lines between Cubans and Latinos and African Americans and into the era of integration was because how that Cuban community in which he grew up in in Key West and then later in, in Tampa, Florida, was one in which these lines were constantly being blurred is mm-hmm. the is the best way I put it. it there was less emphasis on that uh, on color within the community among those who were pushing for independence. Now, the rise of Jim Crow South would also rear its ugly head um, in the Cuban community, and that too would shape the world in which Os von uh, would grow up in and ultimately would leave. Um, the Tampa of the 1890s and, and 1900s was very different than the Tampa of 1910 when Alice von would migrate to Harlem.
0: So how did he wind up in Harlem?
1: Well, again, in 1910, we had uh, a series of Italians and Italian immigrants and Italian Americans who had come to Tampa, and along with Cubans, there was this one particular cl- uh, union uh, labor union group called, it's, in Spanish it's La Resistencia, in English it was called the Resistance, and they were trying to organize the cigar workers and, and, and other workers, and what we saw was a, vi- a vigilante committee in Tampa of business uh, interest. Hired vigilantes and they went out and they lynched a number of these Italian um, organizers, labor organizers. And the word really within the, the Cuban and the Cuban American community, uh, particularly among Afro Cubans, is or was the was that if Italians, who in their estimation were white, were getting lynched and you know and, and put on display for all to see as a warning. How much worse would it be for a black Cuban who who is trying to organize or trying to stand against the power of Jim Crow? And so there was a mass uh, mass exodus out of uh, of. Well, was Ybor City by then was the, really the stronghold of, of Afro-Cubans in Tampa in 1910, because that's when the lynching occurred, and many of them took flight. This was no place for a black Cuban to reside. Um, what had been the dream of building and maintaining a strong Cuban community had actually been disintegrated with the success of the Cuban independence movement because after the Cuban independence movement was when Jim Crow in Tampa took hold within the Cuban community and so that's what motivated Alex best to leave, to head up to Harlem and it was a part of Harlem it's um, about 8th Avenue um, and between 100 and um, trying to get this right. In any case, they call it Little ebor is what the uh, Afro-Cubans end up calling it. I think it was Fourth in, in, uh, to like 108th Street. Mm-hmm. And they called it Little ebor because that's where they ended up heading. And that part of Harlem is not Spanish Harlem. It's really in, uh, at the southern edge of Black Harlem. And... These and Alice Moffat himself, Afro Cubans did not tend to move to what was then Spanish Hall because Spanish Hall was an Italian neighborhood that would, and lots of Jewish people who would eventually become a majority Puerto Rican neighborhood, and that's why it was called Spanish. So Alice came to Harlem right at the point that the numbers game was really taking off. So he entered into the numbers game at the ground floor. And he also used his skills as someone who was bilingual, um, a, a U.S. citizen who was, you know, very aware of what it meant to be black in America, but also fully engrossed in Latino culture, whether it's um, Cuban or uh, some of the other groups that were around in New York City, he arrived right on time to really place himself at the center of this emerging uh, business Mm -hmm. in Harlem.
0: So for the non-gamblers among us, what does it mean to play numbers, and what does it mean to be a numbers king?
1: Well, to play the numbers was, you can bet anything from a penny up to uh, multiple dollars, and most. Numbers bankers would not accept a bet of more than five dollars because it paid off at, at a rate of 600 to one. So you can, in, in 1920s, 1930s money, you know, five dollar bet risk you are having to pay 30. Let's see, let me get my math correct here. Uh, 30,000, yeah. So you know, you, you don't want to uh, take a bet that large, but. You can bet on any number between zero and 999. And there were dream books that people consulted um, and so that they can interpret your dream and tell you what number seeing a black cat walk across the front of your house at 12 o'clock midnight meant. And, and That was an industry to itself. And playing the numbers allowed many residents of Harlem and elsewhere, because it wasn't just in Harlem, but throughout New York City and, and also in other major urban areas who provided those who were poor, underemployed, the opportunity should they, and it was called you hit a number. If your number hit, if you bet a nickel, you got $30. That's that's a couple months rent mm-hmm. at that time. And so the industry really took off during the Depression. And in fact, in the case of Osmond Bez, the, the term numbers king was really, it, it made, um popular by Claude McKay, the um, great uh Holland Renaissance writer. And McKay referred to those um, numbers bankers who did the most business um, as Numbers Kings and Queens because there was also Madison Claire who who's um uh numbers queen. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Alice Pompez in nineteen thirty two according to estimates that were made by um by Thomas Dewey, and later on in the trial his uhz's numbers bank was grossing between five and seven million dollars a year you know, so this is nineteen um thirty two money uh and so he was it was a very uh lucrative business in terms of gross revenue but herein lies the issue for most folks in Harlem and this separated you from being considered a numbers king and a race man and being considered someone like that Schultz as an outsider and abuser of the people. is What did you do with your money? Did you reinvest it in the community? Did you ever run off with the numbers winnings of someone else when a number hit and you didn't have enough money to cover everything? And so Alex Montbez had a, race, a reputation as a square shooter, a stand-up guy, because he never squelched on on a number. If, if a bad number hit, and bad in his case was, he didn't have enough money to cover it he always came back and would eventually pay off all the betters and so Pompez had a great reputation within Harlem and in fact it was because he ran the Negro League baseball team and he owned restaurants and he used all these things to help the community and so um, he was really and you see this in the pages of the Amsterdam News and the New York Age that Bombay was one of Harlem's own and his team was called the um, the Latins from Manhattan, the Harlem's own baseball club. And he was quite admi- by a certain segment admired. And yet Numbers Bankers had this very um ambivalence uh, within the Harlem population because, you know, it was gambling, mm-hmm. you know, and so sometimes some preachers would very much um, speak out against the the numbers racket. On the other hand, the numbers provided employment and, and a possibility of making some money. For so many Harlem residents, that others didn't protest too much the presence of the numbers racket um, because sometimes it was the numbers money that was filling the coffers at the church on Sunday. <laughs> so, you know, people had to be very careful about speaking too vociferously about the, you know, the damage that, that the numbers were doing to the community.
0: Mm-hmm. Do have, I'm going to read a little quote because I think it really lays that out very nicely. It's the participation in the underground entrepreneurial sector was part of Pompez's strategic approach to coping with the limitations imposed by racial discrimination within the sporting world and everyday life. He made his personal wealth from his numbers bank operations and funneled earnings to finance his baseball operations. I know that he did have a bad number come up once, and that's kind of how he got tied in with Dutch Schultz. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. You know, and it, it, it was all tied up to what was called Black Wednesday. On that day... Um, the number 527 hit and the problem was this was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving of course the number the banks would be closed and, and the problem would become can you cover? And Pompens ended up $68,000 short. He couldn't cover. And part of this issue was, you know, how much of your capital is liquid? That is, how much money could you get your hands on after this number hit? And the number was 527, and one of the things I found in doing the research, because people were like, you know, why would 527 be such a great number to play, and why would so many people play it? Well, 527 basically was, um, in one explanation, there's five uh, five letters in the name of Jesus, (laughs) and after the second day he arose, so if you added five plus two, you had seven. And since this was a week of Thanksgiving, that's what many people did. We're going to be thankful and we're going to bet, you know, this religious plan. So, again, here you see the mixture of, you know, the ideas of religion, the gambling, whatever people can grab to get those numbers, Mm -hmm. they used it. And it hit. And Bumpez and many other bankers were left in a lurch because it was very widely played. And... Many of them were short and couldn't go to the banks and where they had their uh, clean money to go claim it. And so in that case, what happens then is that they had to find someone to cover the short. And this is where it went that Schultz swooped in Mm -hmm. because Schultz had been looking at Harlem's numbers banking system as his place to step in because the Volstead Act was being repealed. Prohibition was going, it was coming to an end. And you know, Schultz has his whole syndicate. What are they going to do with their time after you can't bootleg liquor anymore? And so that's when he turned his eyes to Harlem's numbers banking. And he had been slowly knocking off, and this mostly not through violence but actually coercion many of the numbers kings and incorporating them into his numbers bank. And some of the numbers kings what they would do is like, look, we're not gonna resist you Dutch. We're I'm retired and they would head off to the to the uh, Caribbean islands and retire. And Schultz would basically take over their customers. Mm-hmm. But Aus Pompez kept holding off. And he uh, he gave Schultz the runaround. He's like, I'm not I'm not coming in, or I'm coming in, I'm coming in, I'm coming in. But he wouldn't. And in Bombez's case, he would actually have two sit-downs with Schultz, where Schultz's um, men, his muscle, Lulu Rosencraft and Bo Weinberg, would show up to us, Bombez's offices, at his candy store and in the New York-Cubans business office. And he would you know, be brought down to to Schultz uh, for 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. sit down and said, look, Dutch wants to talk to you. And Bombay at one point told him, yeah, I'll come join you. But Bombez was just trying to buy his time and hopefully cover the rest of the short because as Bombez, just like everyone else, knew that Dutch Schultz doesn't have partners. Not with Harlem, Kings and Queens, you end up working for Schultz. And, in fact, after giving Schultz the runaround from November till February, Bombez ultimately had to uh, join forces with Schultz. Mm-hmm. And Schultz made him pay. And by that, I mean, you know, Bombez's bank had been lucrative. It had been making so much money. And Bombez went from a numbers banker, where everyone worked for him, to what basically was called a controller, someone who worked a banking area for the banking kingpin, And so Bumpez went from being the king to being salaried. And he was supposed to get $200 a week. But in fact, he ended up getting paid about $75 a week. Bumpez was also supposed to get a cut of the profits. And throughout the time that Bumpez was working for show, somehow it, it showed up that um, his bank never made a profit, <laughs> and so that's the protest is like, you know how is it that you know this bank was so lucrative when I was in charge, and now there's no money here, and so he was able to negotiate ultimately his way out of the control of that Schultz. Mm-hmm.
0: We should probably back up a bit, because during this whole time, he's also involved in baseball. Can you talk about how he got involved in baseball in Harlem?
1: Sure. Um, well, Ben's interest in baseball really goes back to his own teenage years. Um, go. Baseball was really pretty much omnipresent. It was the sport of the Cubans, both in the communities throughout the United States and in Cuba itself. And again, one of the fascinating things about the story of Latinos in baseball, particularly those from Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, is that baseball was already their national game when they arrived to the United States. And in the case of Cubans, all those communities in Key West, in Tampa, there, those communities in, in um, throughout Florida, but also in New York and Philadelphia, that those communities, they already played baseball in those places. And so for Oswald Feds, among the things he began to do when he arrived in Harlem in 1910 is that he linked up, all the while being in the numbers game, as you mentioned, he linked up with this guy, his name was Nat Strong. And Nat Strong was the head of the inner-city baseball Uh, or Metropolitan Baseball Association, which ran the semi-pro baseball circuit in New York City. And Strong actually controlled the booking of all the venues of the semi-pro baseball venues throughout New York City. So a very powerful man. Um, And Bumpez worked for um, Strong for a number of years. And then... Bumpaz, in 1916 launched his own baseball club. It was called the Cuban Stars. And so, from so 1916, we would see Bumpaz have a team that would participate. What would ultimately be called the Negro League, and he was there then at the formation, at the very organization of Negro League baseball in the United States. Um, in 1920, that was his first successful Negro League organization called the Negro National League. In 1923, several years later, we saw the Eastern Color League take shape, which was based in, in the East, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alice Lopez's team, the, uh, the Cuban Stars, would be part of that league. So Alice Lopez would be involved in the um, this venture of black baseball, really from its inception as a strong national based professional organization. And what he did different than, than the other owners in the Negro Leagues was that he would use talent from the United States and from the Caribbean world, but he also ventured beyond Cuba. You see, prior to Osmopes, the only place where Negro League owners were securing talent was from Cuba. And Pompez, a Cuban American, would actually go to Puerto Rico, would go to the Dominican Republic, would go as well to Panama and and elsewhere to secure talent for his baseball club. And so he internationalized black baseball in the United States beyond Cuba. And that would also be a template later on for how he would approach his work for the New York San Francisco Giants baseball team. Mm -hmm. And Pompez was quite successful. His Cuban stars would be the most competitive of all the Latino teams that participated in the Negro Leagues um, in the nineteen. 20s and 30s and into the 40s. He would outlast them all. Mm You see, the history and this is a thing that many baseball fans, even Negro League baseball fans are not fully aware about about was from the very early formation of the Negro Leagues, Ruth Foster seeking to create um, his, his league, and this goes back to like 1908, he had always included a team that was full of Cuban players. And so, Pompez would move beyond Cuba. He would bring a level of talent uh, beyond what others had, had been able to successfully put together on a, a team. And again, this was one of those things that fascinated me because. At the same time, he was becoming a numbers king in Harlem. Osmo Bez would travel with this baseball team, and much like the old baseball giant, uh, Connie Mack, ran the Philadelphia Athletics as owner and manager, Osmo Bez would be in the dugout with this team, managing the team as well. And it's just this image of the numbers king managing the baseball team. To me, it brings a smile to my face because it really shows his level of involvement in the baseball world and that baseball was not something he just dabbled in. He really, truly loved the game and it very much pulled him away from the numbers king or the numbers game, which was where he was generating his wealth. And so, again, we see a story of entrepreneurship and how the role that the numbers, the sporting world in Harlem, but not just in Harlem, but among blacks in America, among Latinos in America. This is one of the few venues of of, of commerce where African-Americans and Latinos could be very heavily involved in it, The story of Alex Pompeo shows how the power of segregation in American life was not just on the playing field, but extended beyond it. And it would impact the lives of even an Afro-Cuban American who aspired to be more. And in the book, I really draw a parallel um, for, for comparison's sake between the story of Joe Cambria who was an Italian-American who became involved initially in the Negro League he owned a team called the Baltimore Black Sox but in 1930. 1930- would begin to be a scout for the Washington Senators, and his role was to sign Cuban players. And he would help to broker the access for, at times, very racially ambiguous Cubans to make it into organized baseball and into the segregated major leagues. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, just like Cambria, Bompez was also a child of immigrants. Bompez's father, José González Bompez, was a white Cuban, but his mother was Afro-Cuban. And so, as I described before, he was referred to in the newspapers as a mulatto. And so because he was an Afro-Cuban-American, a mulatto as as they called him in his day, he could not have the same opportunities as someone like Joe Cambria did. And so, Camber is able to participate in the segregated major leagues prior to integration. And for Bobes, he would have to wait till after the launching of baseball's um, integration in 1947 to have his opportunity to make an impact in in major league baseball. Mm
0: I want to come back to the scouting in just a second. But I do think that one of the anecdotes that really points up his industriousness um, is the fact that one of the continuing problems within the Negro League was securing stadiums in which to play. And Pomp solved that by basically securing his own stadium. Can you talk a bit about the Dykeman Oval?
1: Sure. And Dykeman, and ultimately, uh, I'll, I'll give you the present status of Dykeman, and then I'll, I'll get back to that story, because Dykeman Oval will suffer the same status as the Polar Grounds and Ebbets Field in that they all would become basically housing projects. They would be raised, and they would be replaced with the other buildings. Um, and what Alice Popez was successful in doing was to in 1934, secure a lease with the Parks Department in New York City for control of Dykeman Oval. And this was very much um, around the time that uh, Nat Strong had recently – actually, Just before Nat Strong died, he got the control of Manova. And why is Dykemanoval so important? Because once he's able to get control of Dykemanoval, he can do all his own scheduling, have all the dates that he wanted for his team, the New York Cubans, as well as to schedule other events. And we would see at Dykemanoval under Bompette's control, football, uh, black football games. We would see soccer, boxing. Uh, One of the uh, events that Osborne Feds was successful at bringing was the first um, fight stateside of the weight Cisco Escobar, the first Puerto Rican to be a world champion in boxing, he would have his first state-side bout at Dykeman Oval in 1935. And Kid Chocolate and others would come and box for beds there at Dykeman Oval. The New York age would call Dykeman the the sport entertainment capital of Harlem. Now, physically, Dykeman Oval wasn't in Harlem. It's actually closer to Inwood, um, current Inwood section of um, of New York City, and what we called a Washington Heights, or Dominicans called Kiskea Heights, the Dominican area of, um, of Manhattan. It's a 204th Street between Dykeman and Nagelow Avenue. But what happens in 19—and and to me, th- this was the beauty of what—this is the shrewd businessman that is Alice Pompez. The IRT, which now is the one and 9 um, train line in New York City, opens up in 1935. And there's a stop uh, on this line that's about less than two blocks away from dyke Oval, And so Pompez invests $60,000 of his own money—well, his numbers money, (laughs) into the renovation of Dykeman Oval into professional ballpark. And so he he built a covered grandstand, and he rebuilt, he uh, uh, puts lights so they can have events at night. And mind you, 1935, it's before most major league teams are having night games. So he has a lit field that would allow... Harlemites who were working to come on a Wednesday evening to come to see a game under the lights, and Harlemites loved it because they could take a train, you know, and, and be there. It wasn't trekking all the way out to Brooklyn or out to the Bronx. This was this was as local as you were going to get for a Negro League game in for for the Black community in Harlem. And so it allowed Pompez to really have this independence that. No other Negro League owner in Harlem would have, when, you, when particularly when you think about black um, owners and black members of Harlem, you know others had tried, but Pompez would be the most successful.
0: So Pompez did run into a little bit of trouble with the law. <laughs> Can you give us some details on that? <laughs>
1: yeah, indeed, <laughs> and in fact, I, I found the first instance of um, when Pompez being arrested what was called a policy violation and that's for being involved in a numbers in the newspapers often times you'll see the term um, policy arrest and basically that's for being involved in a numbers racket um, and in 1923 was the first instance in which Alice Pompez was arrested and it was in January and what, what struck me was in the New York Age and a number of other black newspapers, you saw they listed that Oswald Bez had, um, had, had not attended the owner's meeting. And then I looked in uh, these, uh, court records for his arrest, like, oh, of course he couldn't make the owner's meeting, which was meeting in Philadelphia. He was in prison in New York (laughs) City. He was, you know, in the tombs, uh, the name of the prison. And so, you know, again, it kind of made me laugh thinking about, here I am looking at these uh, documents in the early 2000s about why, you know, the newspapers are reporting, no, he's not there. It's like, okay, I know exactly why he's there. He's he's been arrested. Um, And Osprey Pence would be arrested a number of times for policy violations. (laughs) But the big Troubles came when Thomas Dewey wanted to squash the numbers racket, as he did in, in trying to squash a number of rackets in New York City in the in mid-1930s, uh, mid to late 1930s. This was, Dewey was named a special prosecutor, and among the things that he sought to do was to, in fact, eliminate the um, the numbers racket, the number of other uh, rackets, and Pompez, was the biggest fish that he wanted to catch, so that he could bring down, um, uh, Dutch Schultz's outfit. And in the case of Schultz, he he had beaten basically that tax evasion um, charge. And but here was the problem: Schultz had been using Harlem's numbers money. To defend himself. You see again, what the how, what the bankers the, typically did was it, they didn't pocket all the profit. They usually kept somewhere uh, a bit of their money should they ever have a shortage or a short um, or a big number would hit, so they can pay everybody off. And Schultz, in creating his syndicate in the numbers racket, was supposed to maintain this money for all the numbers bankers and. What Schultz ended up doing was actually extracting money out of that bank and paying his lawyers and defending himself uh, against the tax evasion charge, and also paying off police officials, judicial officials, and Democratic Tammany hall officials to try to ensure that Schultz's operations would not be messed with by the police. And so... Both beds and others ultimately were became aware of what Schultz was doing. And this was was how Bombez was actually able to get out of Schultz's hold. Because Bombez asked, where's my money? This is while while Schultz was being um, in Albany, he was on trial for the tax evasion charge, and Bombez demanded, I haven't been paid, I haven't gotten what I was supposed to have gotten. Where's my money? What's going on here? And That word was communicated via um, George Weinberg, Bo Weinberg's brother, up to Dutch Schultz. And and Schultz says, look, basically, this guy's been in trouble. He's a phone on our side. Let him go. We'll get him back later. And so this was in 1934. Um, Pompez is able to get out of the hold of Dutch Schultz. And then Schultz beats the tax evasion charge. LaGuardia makes sure that Schultz doesn't set up shop back in New York City. So Schultz actually goes across the water to Newark, New Jersey, and ultimately is shot, killed at the chop house in Newark. But what since Dewey could not get Schultz, he wanted to get the next big thing. Who was that political figure who was actually – Negotiating the access to the police, to judicial fi- uh, figures and, um, and politicians in New York City, and that was a guy that was named Jimmy Hines. And so, since Pompéz had seen much of what was going on in Schultz's operation, because in fact Pompéz was the biggest numbers king that Schultz had had been had successfully gotten into the syndicate in the nineteen uh, thirty-two and thirty-three. Dewey went after Schultz. Dewey went after Pompez to try to get him to turn state's evidence, and Pompez didn't want to do it. And so what we see is in 1937, Dewey gets, in January of 1937, Dewey gets an indictment against Pompez for his policy violation, but also for conspiracy. And this was to extort money to pay protection um, from all the other numbers bankers. Basically, was saying that Pompez was a partner with Schultz in extracting money from all of these other numbers bankers. And Pompez flees. He flees to Mexico and was able to hide away for several months in Mexico, but ultimately was caught by uh, federal, the federal police in Mexico. And uh, again, Pompez had a good law team as well as a good baseball team because Pompeo's lawyers were able to use the Mexican um, system of law, which was kind of a federal system, um, and he was able to stay the the, uh, writ of extradition for six months by having his lawyers refile whenever one was turned down. Um, They took about 72 hours before a judge would, um, would give, they will give the stay, say in two hours we'll give a ruling and they kept refiling it in a different federal district and so in, the way, in terms of how their law system works he was able to do this in 13 different states uh, but they kept extending the time extending the time extending the time and ultimately um, Dewey decides you know we, we have to offer this guy the opportunity to turn states evidence and not fear prosecution and Dewey pulls what's one of the very first October surprise, because on October 31st, Pompez arrives back into Penn Station. The newspapers, the New York Times and other papers, would pronounce that Dewey gets his man. And Dewey was running for district attorney at this point, and that was the biggest fish. And that Help propel Tom Dewey to become a district attorney, successfully bringing Pompez back from Mexico as state's evidence. And, you know, that he was that tenacity of getting his man and that he was going to end corruption. And so Pompez was in the middle of this trial of Jimmy Hines, and it was, in fact, a pivotal figure in what Tom Dewey had set out to do and first become a district attorney and ultimately become governor of New York.
0: We're slowly running out of time, so I wanted to hit up on a couple things before we end. Um, could you talk about Pompez's legacy in Major League Baseball and with the Negro League, just kind of an overview?
1: Sure. I was also- was the most important figure in the incorporation of Latino talent into U.S. professional baseball, from the era of the Negro Leagues to the era of of integrated Major League Baseball. He would do the same thing that he did as a scout for the San Francisco Giants organization that he had done in the Negro Leagues. He branched out beyond what was familiar to others, and that was Cuba. He signed the first Dominicans who would appear not only in the Negro League. but the most significant Dominican players that would be the first wave of players in the Major Leagues, and those players were Juan Marichal and Felipe Alu, his brother um, Mateo Alu and Jesus Alu and other, so like Manny Moda, and he would also sign Orlando Cepeda and other many other Latino greats. He actually had signed um, the uh, Chicago great, uh, White Sox player, Manny Minoso, when he was in the Negro Leagues. He brought a young Manny Minoso out of the Negro, uh, into the Negro League uh, in 1945. And so, Hans Montez had a, a, a very astute ability to find Latino talent, but also to branch beyond what others were doing, and that gave him a great advantage for others. And, you know, among the individuals that are in the baseball hall of fame, I dare say he's connected to more than any other individual in terms of how they got into uh, professional baseball or into the major leagues. Um, and so Alex Lopez really played this important role in helping for many Latino players to make it in. But the other significance was because it was black and Latino, the, the San Francisco Giants actually made a lot of accommodations for how to deal with incorporating these black and Latino players into the the, the major leagues. And more specifically for the black Latinos, here you have someone who's very familiar with how race operated in the South and throughout the United States, given its many years of service as an owner in the Negro Leagues. And so Alice Lopez would have Spanish language classes for the newly arrived Latino players so that they would become more familiar with life for life in America. And then he would also try to mentor many of these players and many ball players like Manny Moda and Felipe Alou would talk and talk to me about what role and importance it meant to have a a black Latino to talk to them about life in the United States as a Latino, as a black man, so that they could deal with the cultural adjustment. And for many of them, that was an important difference between their staying and their leaving the United States. Um, and so, yeah, Oslo Lopez had a really important role in, in both signing these talents, but helping them understand what life was like in the United States.
0: And Pompeo was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2006, correct? And that was, that was quite controversial.
1: Yeah, in 2006, Pompez was part of this um, uh, special election of Negro League players that took place, and for Pompey's, you know, a lot of the controversy centered around you know here we had someone who was uh, involved in the numbers in gambling, and as. I served on a 2006 committee, and, and much of the discussion that took place within the committee and in the room was how Alex Bonfez was not alone in the regards to being involved in the numbers. Because of the reality of how race operated and how the Negro Leagues operated uh, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, just about every... Negro League team had Negro League money in in run in its operations and helping to run it and paying its players. Otherwise, Negro League really could not have operated at all. So to penalize Pompez for being involved in the numbers is really not to acknowledge what was the reality of race and, and economics in 1920s, 30s, and 40s America. Um, there you know, this was not seen as dirty money within the black economic world and within the black sporting world. This is just a reality of how people were trying to get by, um, in these times. And so some, Said, oh, this was a partner with Dutch Schultz, and you know he should never have been let in. But again, you know it, it's a way that people really were not trying to acknowledge the reality of race. Dutch Schultz did not have partners in the Negro leagues or in in Harlem. People worked for Schultz, and it was precisely because Schultz was a white businessman that he was able to secure the kind of access to power brokers in New York City government that scarcely a black man could imagine to have and i spoke didn't, you know, go willingly into Schultz's outfit. He didn't seek out Schultz. This was your your typical, you know, power play exploitation taking place. Um, and again, it's important to really acknowledge the full extent of our history as a place, you know, where race so shaped the 1930s America and, and of baseball itself. Because, you know, without you know the color line in the major leagues, you what know, they're really been a Negro League? Most likely no, because we would have seen a very different world emerge. And so, you know, Pompette, as I noted before, brought in the greatest number of talent out of Latin America, and was also very much a pioneer in some of the approaches that were adopted. And again, looking at baseball history and more contemporarily, he brought in what academics would call best practices uh, of how to help cultural adjustment for these Latino players. Most major league organizations now involve... bilingual coaches under um, Major League staff, but also have um, individuals who teach Spanish language, um, or should I uh, repeat that, English language acquisition to these young ball players. And so a number of the things that Alcum Fez was doing with his players in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, Major League teams wouldn't really pick up until the 1990s and the 2000s. And, you know, again, for me, it's very fascinating that his role in how we ought to think about race, identity, and even what it means to be black and brown in America and what and how Alice Bombett used that to transform and in fact to improve the black world of baseball and and Black Harlem itself. And that's the story of Cuban Star.
0: Well, thank you so much, Adrian, for talking with us about Cuban Star. Uh, any idea who you'll be writing about next?
1: Well in fact, um, I, my next project is geared at looking at the story of integration in Chicago, both on the baseball field and talking about Minnie Minoso and Ernie Banks as the two great black ball players who become really the icons of sport in Chicago. But at the same moment that Chicago was resisting, many Chicago neighborhoods were resisting Integration in terms of housing, and whether it's building of, of public housing or the moving in of black residents into those neighborhoods and For me, as a historian, I am so fascinated by the whole story of integration it's promised the the the, the dream of integration, what it was supposed to mean, and yet how did people react to that when it came to their door when it came to their neighborhood and so to this day, Ernie Banks and Minnie Minoso are beloved in Chicago by people who may not have loved to see someone who looked like Banks or Minoso moving in next door. So it's an incredible story, I think, of what was going on in America during that, that period and more more specifically what's going on in Chicago. So that, that's what I want to look at next.
0: Wow. As a Chicagoan, I definitely look forward to that. Thank you so much for speaking with us today.
1: Thank you for having me on. I
0: really enjoyed it. We've been speaking today with biographer Adrian Burgos Jr. about his latest biography entitled Cuban Star, which is now out in hardback and which will be available in paperback on April 24th, 2012. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.